if you're just telling me that you're thinking about the upcoming baby number three joining the family early this next year, there's a lot of things that a, a baby introduces to the family. But what's front of mind for you the most? Yeah. Yeah. As you said, baby number three. So I have two kids, four and two. And now baby number three is coming in early January. And we're recording this on the, what, the 26th of October. So pretty soon here. Yeah, man, just space. Like we live in a, we live in a two bedroom, two bath house. We, my wife and I bought back in 2017 near downtown Houston. And our kids share a room right now. Like our second bathroom is really like a toilet and like our bath. We've set up a temporary closet in the bath that has been our closet for the last two years plus for things we actually hang up. And then our closet has another crib in it where our, my, our son used to be when he was small until until he was about maybe six months old. We moved him over to share a room with his sister. So baby number three is coming. We're running out of spots to put kids. We're running out of spots to put kids. That's <laughs> It takes up an inordinate amount of mind space for me because we have to do something, right? We got to either move, but we love where we live. We love the schools. We love our kids, friends. We, we love our church and just everything about being where we are feels right. And that kind of feels off the table right now. And so really the next option is addition, like building onto our home. And so that's what we're running down exploring right now. Can you move somewhere that's there close by? Is it just, it doesn't sound like it's an area yeah, issue, but. No, we, we could. That, that's a good point, right? I think the challenge that me and, and a lot of people are facing right now with those kind of moves, non-necessary non moves, maybe is a good way to say it. Affordability of homes is lower than it used to be. And the market here in Houston has not cooled up. Homes are continuing to cool up. The fact that interest are, you know, interest rates are three over three times what they were back when I just refinanced my my house hasn't put a damper on this market, at least where we live. And going from I basically triple my monthly payment mortgage payment to buy any kind of house that would fit us rather than than adding on. And I just I'm just not ready to triple my mandatory monthly spend on housing. Yeah, with the context of interest rates, an addition probably sounds pretty good. I'm sure forking over building costs and stuff is yeah. never fun, but comparatively, when you're looking at monthly payments like that, I'm sure it's significantly better. Yeah, I think the benefit of the addition is that I can keep my mortgage, my current mortgage as a base. Like I don't have to necessarily refinance that as long as I can come up with the cash to build on or a bridge loan or some sort of like creative line of credit against future building value or something like that. And then I can always create, get a home equity line of credit above my mortgage to pull out whatever cash I need to keep it working. At least that's my current plan on this home. And then if we find favorable mortgage rates sometime down the road, or it makes sense to refinance the whole thing like we will. I'm always looking at that type of thing. But I think for now, the, what makes the most sense to me is paying cash for the addition or a bridge loan or something like that. And then doing a home equity line of credit to cash out the building cost. You never really cease to amaze me. We've been uh, friends for a little while, but you always are talking about creative ways to solve problems. And that might be primarily having to do with just the line of work that you're in, which we're going to get into. One last yeah. kind of question about the kind of like the parenting aspect. Any 
input or advice on like building a successful marriage and like being a dad. I know that's something that you think about a lot and hold in very high esteem. So. Yeah. Okay. Here's a couple of principles that I want, I try to live by and that I would recommend anybody live by in order to have a, a solid marriage. The first one is assume positive intent. Just assume positive intent. So if you, for example, if you're, you and your wife, your partner or whatever, your partners, like that's the word is partner, right? You're on the same team. You're always on the same team. Everything you do is to further y'all's lives. A lot of couples get into arguments because they're, it's really like, turns, it's like unmet desires, selfish desires, uncommunicated desires, whatever. Maybe the person doesn't understand. They don't know, whatever. But if you just assume the other person is approaching a situation with that mindset, it will just, it, it, it will diffuse conflict before it ever arises. I think that's probably one of the more important lessons that I've learned over, I've been married 10 years now. Uh, I know I don't look it, but married a decade. And, uh, and that's probably one of the best lessons I've learned. Like, in terms of like kids, man, I think one, the first thing I'd say is talk to your kids and teach them. Kids are incredible they they can learn and figure out things way sooner than you even thought they could and even if their communication isn't quite where where they can conversate with you they still understand a whole lot more than you think they do and we've always treated our kids like talking to them i never really did baby talk that kind of thing when they're little babies you do but as they've grown older we just explain things for example yesterday my son used to he he wanted a toy that my daughter had. She, it was her toy. She was playing with it first and he just, he wanted it. And he went over, tried to grab it from her. And she's like, no, Jacob, like holding it. And then he goes to hit her and he raises up his hand. I grab it before he connects. And he's just like looking at me and I could just be like, no hitting, bad, no hitting. Don't do that. And that will generally stop. Okay, they know it's bad. But we always go a step further and be like, hey, that." I know, buddy, you just wanted that toy and you didn't know what to do. You didn't know how to get it from her or whatever. Next time, instead of kidding, why don't you, why don't you ask her for a turn? Why don't you say, Nora, can I please have a turn? Or Nora, when can I play with this? Or something like that to that effect. And just like in it takes a million times to get it into their head. But you, that using that strategy to, to correct behavior, like giving them another option for their behavior rather than just disciplining them or yelling at them for the wrong thing they did, but actually teaching them what's the right way makes life a whole lot easier, right? It's like you're doing two things at one time. You're correcting the bad behavior and you're teaching them the right behavior, which I think maybe like another little step that can get missed sometimes when you're in the heat of the moment. Why is that what you just described with your kids so counterintuitive for people, do you think? Because it's I see that a lot. It's just very, it's a binary thing. Like you did bad, yell, whatever. And it just, there's not really any follow-up or like recourse. And especially as like a young child who I'm imagining, like putting myself in the shoes of this young kid. It's, I just got yelled at. And then I can tell that my parent is mad at me. And then I also don't have this toy. So I'm still not in a good spot and not that the objective is to make them feel good about it, but I can't see that being a really good long-term way to teach children. 
Yeah. No, children just developmentally, they have trouble controlling their emotions, right? They, they just can't, they're hard, it's hard for them to regulate themselves. And so when you yell at a child, which don't get me wrong, there are times to yell. Like if my kid's about to run in the street, I'm screaming at them because I, I don't want them, I don't want to teach them the right thing in that moment. I want them to stop whatever they are doing so they don't get into a dangerous situation. That is like the one, that's one of the few times like I am like yelling really loud at them and they get scared. And I do want them to be scared in those situations because I want them to hear my voice when it gets to the level of intensity and just freeze. That's the whole goal. But with the kind of like just regulating their own emotions, they're not quite, they're not quite capable of it. And so when you, as a parent, scream at your children, you also aren't regulating emotions. So now you have a situation where both the child and the parent aren't properly regulating their emotions and the kid just has nothing steady. There's nothing, it's not going to help calm down the situation. They're now, everybody's emotions are heightened and it just becomes this stressful, challenging thing for the child. They don't know what to do uh, in that situation. And a lot of times it turns into fear, right? Fear is a very easy way to, to get a child to do something you want them to do, right? Fear of discipline, fear of spanking, fear of whatever. That's, that's an easy way, but, what it, but it doesn't teach anything. It just teaches them to be afraid when they do something wrong. It doesn't teach them the right thing. I don't know if that fully answered your question, but just a couple more thoughts on it. No, I think that's right. And I think having that mentality and seeing, hey, this child doesn't have the ability to regulate emotions, like it's, it puts a lot of the way that we act in perspective because sometimes I have trouble regulating my emotions. Like sometimes I'm not yeah. doing the emotional, emotionally mature thing, whether it be in a work context or maybe sometimes with my wife or whatever. I'm not perfect on that. And I think it's a really high bar to like hold a small kid accountable. And I think that's good advice. Somebody told me once, and this isn't directly pertaining to children, but it just pertains to like maybe emotions, arguments or disagreements whatever, what have you. Hysterical is historical. I don't know if you got, you've ever heard that kind of term before, but the gist of it is just saying like when somebody's reaction to something doesn't seem right-sized for what the problem actually is, or what the disagreement is, it's because, it's usually because there's something historical about, about it, right? This person isn't just bringing this one conflict or this one challenge. They're bringing every time they felt this way however far back they felt it into this moment, right? All of that unfairness or all of that unmet desire or all of that, whatever it might be, wrong, wrongness that somebody has given to them. Anyway, it's just, if you think about things that way, it can help you get into somebody else's shoes a little bit and maybe control your own response a little bit better, realizing that, hey, they're not necessarily treating me unfair because of this one situation. They're treating me unfair because they're bringing all this extra baggage into the argument. And now that you know that, you can just respond with more grace and with more love than you otherwise would. I think from the parenting perspective, that is like an interesting frame of mind in which to discipline or have conversations with your kids and thinking about, hey, is how I'm responding to when my kid does X that frustrates me, am I reinforcing the wrong behaviors over time? Because hey, if I'm yelling every time they do this, what's going to happen in a couple of years? Am I getting them, am I actually showing them how to respond to something? 
And yeah, I, th- I think that's great advice. And I'm going to, I'm going to put that one in my pocket. So I, I appreciate yeah. it. You're a couple of years down the, the road for me. Yeah. Let's take a couple of minutes and maybe set the scene for the rest of our conversation here. I know you, we are in a peer group or Twitter friends and a couple other things. Give me like the two to three minute spiel about what lands you here with me today. Yeah. I'm an, I'm a veteran, obviously. I was a submarine officer from 2012 to 2017, separated from 2017, moved to Houston and started working for ExxonMobil Corporation in the supply chain. Chemical engineer, working for a chemical company at chemical plant. And that was before I had kids. My daughter was born right before COVID in 2019. And when COVID, everybody was working from home, trying to figure things out. And at the time, my daughter was like say eight months old when that all started, nine months old when that all started. And my wife and I had this, we couldn't even put, give her, put her in care. The first month or so, we were basically watching ourselves at home while trying to work and figure this whole COVID thing out. And it was just a really sweet time. It was just incredible being able to spend that much time with my daughter. Um, I kind of spent so much time with her. And we, first time parents, so we really had no idea what to expect. But then that was, and we realized, especially when we started going back to work more and we put her back in care, we just we loved that time with our kids. And so fast yeah, forward a couple of years, I'll still be able to work from home really well. And in 2021, end of 2021, my, my son's September. Right about that time, a couple of competing forces were coming together. One, I was going, I knew I was going to get a new job that was going to require me to be in the office a whole lot more frequently, which honestly, I'm, I'm a believer in in the office time for some companies. It is important sometimes to be there and meet a bunch of other people. I'm not like the staunch work from home person, but I just knew that sweetness that we had, our, our daughter, we were not going to get with our son. I was going to go back to the office, be working more. My wife was going to, to get a new job that was more demanding travel. We were in a position where we would have to hire somebody to wake our kids up, get them to school probably pick them up, take them to after school activities. And that just became untenable. thought. Really knowing what we knew about how much, how, we, how much we love spending time with family. And so I had already been investing in single family homes. I bought a short-term rental in North Carolina, a, a larger home. And my buddy of mine, his name's Kyle, had started investing in vacant land. But I was basically doubled my money in a couple months. And I was like, this is fantastic. How do I get, how do I get started with this? And so, yeah, back that was September. I started a, a land flipping land. At the time, it was literally just I had one strategy: just buy a piece of land and somebody else buy it, list on it, list it for sale, take some pictures, sell. It. And uh, within six months of starting that business, I lined up enough profit essentially to place my income more than one time over an exit. I was like, all right, I guess this thing is real. And I the company and went into land full time. That lent itself to being on Twitter and just engaging with other entrepreneurs and business owners and people uh, just out there because I'm the master of my own time now. I decide how I spend my time, what groups I'm a part of. It. And you, I, you had posted something about getting a veterans group together on Twitter. And I was like, I'm in. I think I just texted, I replied, I'm in. You're like, great, DM me. And then that, and now I'm here. <laughs> here we are. Here we are. Now I'm. 
I'm glad that we're finally getting to have this conversation and kind of get into a little bit of your backstory. I didn't know that piece about you about the piece about working from home and like why that was actually the defining factor for you in terms of wanting to change up your lifestyle. I think that there's a lot of things that are looked at when people talk about entrepreneurs. They're like, oh, you've got more time agency. You get to decide. And I think that's like especially true and like a, a really critical thing for parents. And it's something that I'm seeing. I have enjoyed working remotely so that I'm able to spend time with my son and being home, or even if it's just for a few minutes, come down, have a bite for lunch, hold them for a few minutes, whatever that is. But that's cool that you saw that there was a need that was being missed in your personal life there. And okay, I'm going to need to literally change up my entire career to adopt something that was more sustainable when it comes to just like spending time with your family. I think that's super unique and like good on you for doing that because I don't think that is people's first instinct to go and, oh, I just need to do something different. It's maybe just complain about it or I don't know, think nothing can be done about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's amazing personally being able to control your time. That's obviously the biggest reason. I think the other like driving reason for doing going off on my own and, and starting a business rather than rather than continuing to work for a corporation. Just control just my trajectory is the right way. Objectively, ExxonMobil is a great company. They one of the largest corporations in the world. They provide exceptional benefits to folks. We make a lot of money working there, but you also are on a path that they set you. And even if you're like the top performer, which I don't, I wouldn't say I was the top performer. I definitely prioritized my family and spend a little more time with my family than in the office if I could, for good reason, because it's more important. But even the very performers at those companies are still on a limited trajectory. You can only make, you're only going to get so much of a raise, right? You're only going to get so much of a stock option if you get into that pool or whatever. And on your own, if you're growing a business, if you're, you just have a whole lot more control over your output and your income and your trajectory. I think when you're in a situation like I was where you have a spouse that works, my spouse works still, we're trying to work. I think maybe she's going to not work after this next baby. We'll see, but she works. And that we had we had been dual income, no kid. We were married for six years before we had our daughter. And so we dual income, no kids, had a lot of savings, had a lot of like runway. Uh, and so taking this risk, if you will, was really a no brainer. It allowed us a whole lot more flexibility and freedom. It allowed us to more quickly, the potential at least, of more quickly scaling our income. And then also we still have, have currently the stability. She worked for Chevron, which is pension, great healthcare great salary. It's like really the best of both worlds. And my, I think folks, especially military, right? Folks that are getting out of the military, if your spouse is working and has a solid job, that's the time to take a risk, right? That's the time to try to do something like this or just go off on your own. If you have an idea, you have to drive because right? you, you have that downside protection. As long as you can make it work on that salary, there's very little risk. The main risk would be just like lost opportunity, right? You're still a veteran with a lot of skills. You can go get a job. 
Right? You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Did Michael Scott say that? Something like that. <laughs> I think that's right. I think you're exactly right. And the I know that I was feeling the pain of that in the Navy in a big way, where officer, a little bit of a different kind of like promotion structure, but you're you're extremely limited, even if you're at the top of the pack. And like corporate America is a little bit better, like in terms of there's not just this, hey, there's only two times a year that you can get promoted and you're going to you have to meet all these other criteria or whatever. If you're a really star performer in some organizations, you can move up quickly. But really, if you want no ceiling on how fast and like how quickly you can grow, you really have to participate in some kind of activity that has like unlimited upside. And I certainly don't know of anywhere other than an entrepreneurship or like maybe a 100% commission sales job, which there's some other weird stuff with that. But entrepreneurship seems to me the really the only way that you can do that. There's everybody has their own comfort zone, right? Like some people are just not comfortable with all. I mean, because obviously as an entrepreneur, there's a lot of other things that come on a lot of other like stresses and things that burdens that you have to carry, especially if the well-being of your family depends on your performance and whatever business you have. Like that's a lot of stress, right? And so it's not for everybody. But if your desire is to have more time and have more control over your time specifically, I don't know what how else you can do it. Were you looking for some sort of financial outcome? Like I know that there was all these other things that were pushing it, pushing you that way, but you were mentioning like the financial upside or like ability to participate in that. Was there like some kind of desired end state for you of maybe it was a dollar amount or, hey, we're trying to like maybe live a certain way, like lifestyle wise that you're like, what I'm doing now, I'm never going to be able to reach that point. That's a good question. Certainly, I wanted to be able to earn more than I was at Exxon. We had come off of it was oil had slumped down. I we come off of basically two years of no pay raises and going into insane inflation. And so, just it was basically like I, I felt like I got I had a pay cut for two years in a row, and it just was so frustrating not seeing any fruits of uh, fruits of your labor. Essentially, there's no advancement. There's no increase in salary after I left. Exxon did so like a, a salary adjustment a couple of years later to make for the inflation losses, so to speak. It's just, it made me feel true, like I probably should have felt already, which is just another cog in the machine, right? And the truth is Exxon doesn't care about me. They, I'm just one person replacing like anybody else was. And I, that, that, was, that was a feeling I wanted to get away from. But in terms of a financial outcome or... Yeah, I guess I wanted to get somewhere quicker, maybe. And what that end goal is, hard to say. The main thing is just the freedom. For example, next year, uh, maybe, so baby number three is coming in January. My wife has already decided she's going to take a year off, full year from work. And so the first, four, I think, four months of maternity leave is what Shepard offers. So she'll get four months, and then she'll get her four weeks or five weeks or whatever she has a vacation. So more like five weeks of fully paid all everything. And then she can take FMLA, no, no pay, but like a guaranteed job, so to speak, and take off for the rest of the year. And so we're, and I can work remote, right? I work 
in my for my house as long as I have a solid internet connection and can call. I have somebody here in the U.S. who can sign documents and things on my behalf, like a power of attorney or, or whatever, then I could work from anywhere. And so our plan right now is to go to Europe, some coastal town, Italy, Spain for a few months. We go somewhere in the mountains for a few months. Whole family and just experience a different culture, language for a while. And that freedom that we have to do that, we wouldn't have if I was still working for X. It just, it wouldn't happen, right? I can't take three months off and go work from Europe. I'd lose my job. <laughs> you don't have that much vacation. I think. And I don't think you don't have to be like particularly wealthy. It's cheaper to live in Europe than it is here in the United States. Yeah, especially if you get off the beaten path. It's yeah. not hard to find a place where, you know, especially a quieter place, which is what you would probably want anyway, if you're going to be somewhere yeah. for a long period of time. Yeah, for there for all we want is good access to good like food markets, restaurants, whatever, a beach or something that we can do with the children like frequently. And, and that's it. That's super cool, man. And I'm glad and excited by the opportunity that you have to do that because that's, I think more people have the opportunity to do things like that than they think, but it's, I don't know, just something that maybe they're not willing to put in the work for it, or maybe it seems too daunting. And I, I like that. I know a lot of people, parents specifically, that would cringe at Oh, bring your kids to something like that. That sounds impossible. I, I appreciate and respect that you like lean into that and want your whole family to participate in that. That's super cool. Yeah, we made it before. Honestly, before COVID, every year of our marriage, so 2012, uh, 2013, you're married. Every year we've gone somewhere out of the country for three, four weeks, like Japan, Africa, South America, New Zealand, like bunch of different places and when our daughter was born we took her to, to costa rica for when she was five yeah five months old or six months old we took her to costa rica for three weeks obviously and then COVID hit on the back end of that traveling has just been something my wife and i both really enjoy and we have noticed that it's been time away from our kids like we're a family like we love our children and we want them to have those experiences too yeah, it's not really. It's if you plan well, it's it's really not that hard to travel with kids. There's a whole lot of extra check marks you have to do, what stuff you have to bring, more stuff to take care of them. But it's just it's not that hard. So I got to ask, what is the best recommendation that you have for places to visit out of the country? Man, honestly, you got to pick one. Like, okay. I'm talking like oh. overall, like the funness what? aspect, like the cost, like just take the average score for everything. And what was the best? Everyone was so different. I, if I have to pick favorite, if you're making me pick my favorite place, favorite vacation, it was, we went to the Galapagos. We were married. It was our honeymoon. We went to the Galapagos and to Peru, to Machu Picchu. And then spent a week at this un only recently communicated with tribe in the Amazon rainforest. It was an incredible vacation. Eight days, like cruise on a really small boat with only 10 cabins around the Galapagos. We just went like island hopping, snorkeling every single day, some hikes, fresh food. We'd be, we'd commute at night across the islands and so you'd wake up 
have this incredible breakfast and then go snorkel. I have never seen, like I see turtles so thick you couldn't even move without touching them. I remember playing fetch with a seal, like a little, like a pup, a seal pup that was not afraid of people. He had this stick and he would swim up and just drop it. And I'd grab it and I'd swim over and I'd drop it and start falling down. And he'd go, just incredible wildlife encounters. Uh, and then Machu Picchu was, is just, just an incredible, I know I say incredible a lot, but we're truly just a, a marvel. And then just going out into the Amazon rainforest and being in this with this tribe that spoke no didn't even really speak spanish they spoke their called the warani tribe and it was just culturally the most magnificent trip we've been on that's my preference is to experience other cultures so highly recommend i'll put that on the list i enjoy talking to people that are well traveled and getting some good recommendations so i appreciate it I want to get into talking about this land business. You were saying that you got your start investing with single family rentals. Give me the high level overview of how you actually break into land investing, because the thought of trying to buy a piece of just vacant land is, I don't know, it it sounds daunting to me uh, when you're just looking at something. And obviously, we've got so much land here in the country and a lot of it is vacant but yeah give give me the high level overview of of how you got there and then we'll get in and a little bit more tactical yeah so obviously starting in single family homes i started wholesale right sending out marketing for off-market deals trying to find interested sellers and then negotiating with those sellers in order to buy their property and then for a profit the flip or just selling the contract essentially which is what wholesaling is um, so it's just a very challenging market home, like single family homes, single family rentals are more of a commodity business, but it's very easy to see what something is worth because a three bedroom, two bath house in right here is worth probably the same or very close to a three bed, two bath house next door to it. And the only real difference is going to be updatedness, updates, improvements, et cetera. And those are very easy to press down because there's a lot of sales of single that is just a very competitive business. About the time that, or while I was doing that, a friend of mine, his name's Kyle, he was it started. He started his own land business, and we were both marketing to off to, to sellers, potential sellers, off market deals. And he was just having a whole lot more success than I was in in just terms of the number of deals, how much money he had to spend on that marketing to get a deal, and then frankly, the profit margins are just way or just significant, way higher in land. And so he came to me. Asked me if I wanted to invest in a deal. I said yes. I put 16 grand with him and he bought this property in Colorado. Nothing on it, had a road to it, and then sold it in a couple months for 45 grand. We split those profits 50 50. And I got all my money back. I said, wow, this is incredible. I'm sitting here trying to buy a $120,000 house to make 15 grand, and you're making with a $15,000, $16,000 piece of land. Teach me, how do I do this? And so I got involved with an, an education coaching program, went basically all in building that business while I was working full-time for ExxonMobil at the time. And as my son, my second child was born, it was slow. It was hard. It was really hard, kind of six-month period while I got my business from inception through, or conception, I guess is the right word there, through profitability. And 
I left my job, my, my full-time W2 chemical engineer, some mobile job about six months after I started the land business full-time since then. That's still super quick. I guess you're probably looking at the cost of the course or the training or whatever it was that you took as like you're being in the hole to get going. What kind of were some of the other startup costs, we'll call them, that kind of got your, gave you a set of wheels to start driving on it on that path towards profitability? That's a good question. I think so. Any, it's hard to find a business where you could just make money day one. It's there are businesses out there, but they tend, if that's true, they tend to be either incredibly challenging so that only like really exceptional people can do them, or they tend to be very commoditized. That there's where there's just not a lot of margin. You can make money, but it can, I think it's just gonna be really hard to do those type of businesses. This is a business where you can't really just make one. The course education that was a, a pretty big. The one-on-one coaching specifically is what I decided to go with because I'd, I'd been figuring it all out on my own for a while with marketing for off-market deals in the household sailing space. And honestly, just learning from somebody who is where you want to be or has already done what you want to do, it's a shortcut. It is like the best shortcut. You can learn everybody's failures and lessons before without having to experience them yourself. There's a lot of value in that. I find a lot of value in that. So some of the other startup costs were just sending out the marketing mail. I started with direct mail marketing. Mail is expensive, 50 to 60 cents per letter. If you're in bulk, you have to send out tens of thousands of pieces of mail to really any kind of traction on deals, deal flow. It's just you got to get into the front of a lot of people before you find folks that are actually willing to sell and work with you and negotiate with you by software. There's not a, a ton of it you have to buy if you're really just getting started. But if you're building a business, you have customer relationship management software to manage your leads. You have to pay things to have like a presence. It's hard. People typically do business with people they trust. And so you don't have a website or kind of credibility. Then you're just another letter they're getting in the mail. You know, see you over. All that has, a, there's a bit of a startup cost to and then I think a lot of it is just, it takes time. Like a deal life cycle is six to nine months. So from the moment you start spending money on marketing material until you've bought some property through that marketing campaign and then realize the profit from that, it could be nine months. It could be more than that. And so you really have to, you have to have runway to be able to span that gap. If you're going all in, if this is your only thing and you need to feed your family off of it, you got to realize that there's actually profiting, right? You were talking about how house flipping is like a commodity and implying that land is less. And there, it's clear that the, the market is extremely inefficient just due to how quickly and how big of spreads there are in between, hey, what you can buy and what you can sell for. Is it realistic that somebody could do this on the side or... Is it like you're talking about building a business off of it? Is this something that people can just take advantage of in their off time? Or do you think to be successful, you really have to commit in a big way? That's a, another good question. Brock, you're full of, full of questions today. Yeah. So what I mean by commodity is really like the data is commoditized. I think it's very easy to value houses because like people buy houses all the time. It's just like a known market, right? There's tons of transactions in, in house. 
that we can just point to and say, hey, look, the neighbor sold their house last month for $250,000. We should probably buy this $250,000 or less. We know we're getting a good deal. Land, there's so much variability in a piece of land that you can't, like, it's, it's way harder to just, this piece of land costs $3,000 per acre because that piece of land sold for $3,000 an acre. You have to, there's things, soil types in the house. What's the zoning or a lot of places that don't have zoning? What's the land use category? How far close is it to a city? Are there utilities already in place or are you going to have to bring them in? Is the property covered in trees? Has it been timbered? Is it farmland? Are there structures on it? Are there not? Are there easement right through the middle of it? Are there buried pipes? Are there power line easements going through it? Is this in the path of development or not? There's just a lot of questions you have to ask about a piece of land to, to value it. And so I think it's just harder to, it's harder than houses to just send out offers on and be confident that whatever your offers are going to be like a, a good buy price. You really need to take a look at every piece individually. That's what I mean by commoditized versus not commoditized. Maybe that's not the right term to do it, but I think it's just, there's more variability in two five acre parcels than there are in two three bedroom, two bath houses. And it's just, it's hard to value. And then to answer your second question, can you do this on the side? Yeah, totally. Most people do in this space because it's a very 80, 20 type business. You don't have to be precise. You can blast out marketing and find a couple of motivated folks to call you back. You really only need to do a couple of deals to, to make a significant impact. And if you're targeting a certain size of land or a certain price range of land where maybe you buy at 50, maybe you buy at 100 and you can sell for 150 plus, one deal can make an incredible impact on somebody's life. Let's say that you get started and maybe this is something that you're just going to do on the side. You have, you're just getting going and maybe you can even draw some parallels to a couple of your first deals, but how do you even begin to start with how to value something. Let's say that there are no comps, like there's nothing even in a, a hundred mile radius. And I'm like, my brain puts this in like maybe a function where there's X, Y, Z for a house of those are all multipliers of what make the house worth or worth more or less. But the, with land, maybe there's 20 for all of the things that you just listed. There's the road access utilities. There's way more variables when it comes to valuing it. So how do you even think about getting started when you know nothing? And it feels like you could easily get yourself upside down if you like didn't know what you were doing. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great point. First thing I would say is it's probably not a good idea to go after properties where you don't have any data at all until you're experienced, right? Because you just don't know. Like you, the last thing you want to do is be upside down at a property. And there's a lot of, between getting a property under contract and actually purchasing the property or wholesaling it, which what some people do, flipping the contract or double closing where they basically line up a buyer and close on the same day as like they buy it and sell it on the same day. So that money just t turns over very quickly or instantaneously. There's so many exits in that. And the way you structure the contract, that, that's what determines where your exits are. And so you have time to do due diligence. Typically, if you're negotiating a contract, usually it'll be like, hey, Brock, you have this 20 acres in rural Alabama or whatever. I want to buy it from you. 
for $50,000. You say, no, 60. And we negotiate back and forth. We finally come to a price. We say, okay, $55,000. So I'll write up a contract or a purchase agreement to you that says, I'm going to buy this property for $55,000. I'll put a little bit of money in earnest, put in probably 500 bucks in earnest with the title company. And then there's a series of conditions that need to be met for me to actually buy this property. One, it has to have legal access. Two, it has to be, the title has to be clean. There can't be any issues that prevent you from giving me a general warranty or some sort of clean title. Those are the main things. And then at the end, it'll say, hey, and also I would like 60 30, 90 day due diligence period where my earnest money is refundable for any reason during that period of time while I do all of my investigations on this property on whether or not I really can buy this price. And then there's a closing date. And so we both agree to those terms. We sign it. We've put it at a title company. And so I have that whole period of time to figure out exactly what I think it's worth, how I'm going to market it, any things I want to do to it, line up the contractors, all of that during that period of time. That's that that gives you some outs in terms of how to actually value it. You, I mean, it really is. It's important to find a place where you have debt to really feel any confidence. And so, I would be wary to buy a piece of property where nothing is sold within a hundred miles because that tells me a couple of things. It tells me a there's not a really good land market there. Who's nobody's buying in this area or nobody's selling. And so at a minimum, I'm going to call local realtors, local land brokers to try to get their feel for the area, get some local experience because I just I don't have experience. To know what to buy. You were just mentioning calling people in the area. Is that how you get comfortable? Because I don't think that you're, I think that you have some target markets, but as far as I understand, like you'll go anywhere where yeah. there's a deal. Is that right? Like, how do you overcome feeling comfortable? You're calling people. And saying, hey, I need you to come do this work. Maybe it's a land clearing thing or whatever, but you're not there to see it. So what is that? How do you get comfortable with that? And what can you put in place to make sure that you don't get screwed? That's a good. So I'm unfortunate to not have been like totally screwed before. I've had some issues here and there, but I think a couple of things. One, typically I'm not hiring somebody to do a huge job like unrecommended or, or un, out of the blue if i'm hiring a contractor for here's an example i had i've had i have this one contractor who's now on his his fifth job for me and the first one we did was just opening up a driveway putting in a culvert like doing a little bit of clearing maybe a quarter acre of some like some trees some smaller stuff and putting gravel down like gravel kind of parking area at the front of a lot that i was selling it was eight thousand dollar job it wasn't a huge job. It wasn't like huge risk. If you mess things up, it wasn't that big of a deal. And so it was like a trust building job. Okay. And he had, I had to build trust with him too. Like he was, he wanted a deposit and it was fine. I was like, hey, absolutely. Give you a deposit. We'll get the work done. Work's done. Payment instantly. And then that starts our relationship. And I had him do a $15,000 job. He didn't require a deposit back. Great job. Paid him instantly. And then I had him do a $60,000 job. And that one required a lot of trust on his part for me because he didn't ask for payment, anything. He fronted all the cost of gravel. He built a huge road bridge for me, cleared a bunch of this property selling right now. And so I guess he's done, I, he, he has a track record with me of doing a great job. I now trust him to do a great job in my projects. 
And then the other thing is I have people on the ground in a lot of these places. I have brokers and realtors that I work with on a regular basis. I have surveyors, I have drone pilots. And so I will send people out to, to check out the work, to monitor the work and look at the property for me. So that's probably another like key thing is like you, I don't buy anything like unseen. Nobody's seen it, right? At a minimum, before I'm purchasing a property, I'm sending a drone pilot out to go to the property, to walk it, to give me their notes, to fly the drone all around. And I'm getting all that photo, that video, their descriptions. They have it. I have them do like dashboard or dash cam drive in. So I can see the whole area as they're driving in. And I get all that data as if I had driven up and seen and flown my own drone. So that gives me obviously a lot more confidence to buy some properties to buy as well. You're making this sound so like straightforward and easy, which tells me that you're like, you're an expert and have been doing this for a while. But man, I'm just trying to picture the logistics of you're sending out tens of thousands of like direct mail and maybe your outreach is like changing over time of what's most effective, but tens of thousands of offers saying, hey, I want to buy this. You're having maybe a small portion of that, but which could be a lot still. So you're then tracking that and then Every one of those individual jobs each has their own surveyor, their own realtor, like their own, all of these contacts that are associated with that. I feel like my head would be spinning, like with all of that that data, like how, I guess uh, there's probably a question in here somewhere. How many deals do you actively keep on the burner at once? And what could you possibly handle with what it is right now? Or like with your current team? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm actually pulling CRM right in this other window while we're talking here. Give you an idea of how many deals we currently just have in the pipeline. Right now. Inventory-wise, I think I have a little over 50 like properties, lots or we have that we're, that we're selling right now. And then we have under contract to sell. So People have put in offers. We've accepted them. We're in the works of moving through title. At 23 lots in acquisitions phase. So they're, they're, we've put an offer in. They've been accepted. And now we're in various stages of title or due diligence work on those properties. And so a lot of those we won't end up buying. Like we're not going to buy all 24. Maybe three quarters of them will actually end up buying because some of them will have uncorrectable issues or insurmountable issues that we just can't get over. Usually we will, like I will buy, I will very, it's very rare that I would back out of a deal. Most of the time, the things based on bad assumptions or, or too high, most of the time we'll come back to the seller if we've made some bad assumptions and just very straightforward to them. Hey, look, this is what we thought and this is what we're going to have to do. And this is, it can cost us this much more money. And I totally understand if you want to just cancel the contract and move on, but we can't pay this price anymore. Here's what we can't pay and why. And so we'll do that. And a lot of times people are amenable to that because they also didn't, you're going to have to put an septic system in, or you're going to have to do something that's just significantly more expensive than you. Or we won't buy a property because it has title issues. Title issues are obviously the biggest kills deals. Airship, people have maybe inherited properties, but there's 20 owners. They have no idea where the, any of them are. You know, that's bit me on quite a few really solid deals, but it's just part of doing business. But how many can I handle? Honestly, I haven't hit the limit yet. You know, every time we get to a point where we think, you know, it's too much to handle, I, I just grow the team. I just bring on more people to help manage the deal flow. 
I'm probably butting up against now with project management because I'm currently managing all, we do a lot of subdivides now. I'm currently managing all of those projects. 13 or 14 of them in the works right now. And that's where it gets a little more challenging because you're, you have these projects where it's not just as simple as closing on it, buying it, and then selling it. It's closing on it, buying it. It's getting your survey engineer out there. It's doing your lot split. It's coordinating contractors to clear driveways or clear home sites. It's getting county approvals and working your plot through the approval process. Sometimes it takes months and months. And you never want to be the bottleneck, right? Because all the while you have capital tied up in these projects that you need to release to actually realize the profit and then put that money back to work in the business. And so I'm probably butting up against me as a constraint, as a project manager and underwriter. But whenever you butt up against those constraints, now I see a need. Now I need to hire for that position and free my time up, continue to grow the business. I'd imagine that just given the sounds like of the the size of the, your team now, like your systems and processes like have to be so buttoned down to like even be able to give this to somebody and say, hey, I need you to go and do this. Will you walk me through the point of like when you made your first hire and then how you have scaled over time to either build out those processes? How do you think about assigning work and like different tasking and then maybe anything that's been easy or really hard about that man wow there's a lot there let's let's there is a lot there (laughs) okay so yeah so i made my first hire about four months into starting the business so at the time i was still working full-time for exxon mobile I'd sent out a bunch of marketing, not tens of thousands, but many thousands of letters. I've scaled into more and more marketing as the has been able to handle more leading flow. But at the time it was just me. And mail is a great marketing channel when you're solo because just, you get you prepare all the mail, you send it out. It takes a couple of weeks to get there unless you're paying for priority steps. A lot of times you do prepaid, pre-sorted, which takes longer to get there, but it's cheaper of a postage method. And then when the letters arrive, you'll get a bunch of calls for a short period of time. A lot of, and what I did was I just, I hired a call center, I paid for a call center to take live calls. And so I didn't have to be on the phone because I was working my job. And so as soon as I get off work, I'd make, I'd call people back. Hey, this is Justin. We, we negotiate, we talk. But very quickly, as I started to scale marketing, wanted to do more deals, that became a challenge. And then once I bought properties, I still had to market them and sell them and get the drone pilot out there, list them on Facebook and list them on Lands of America and get the, get a realtor and all that kind of stuff. So the first hire I made was somebody to help me on the sales. So I could still negotiate with properties, but once we got the properties under contract, they could start the pre-marketing for listing them for sale and then all the steps that I need to sell the property. A VA in the Philippines that I hired posted a job on a website called onlinejobs.ph and Quite, several applicants. I actually ended up hiring two people right about the same time. One was the sales and then one was the transaction coordinator. Somebody who could, once we got a property under contract, work with the title company and move our, basically move the properties through the pipeline, through the acquisition side and through the, the sales once we got offers. I didn't have to do that anymore. I didn't have to schedule drone pilots anymore. She took on that job. I didn't have to coordinate all of that, all the communication with our buyers and sellers. She, she handled that. And then it got to the point where now I'm the bottleneck acquisitions. 
with, I want to send more marketing, but can't answer all these calls. I'm delaying getting back to people with a certain number of hours to call people back. And so the third hire I made was an acquisitions assistant, essentially, who could talk on the phone and negotiate with, with sellers. And then quickly after that, I hired another one because we wanted, we were starting to text as a marketing outreach tool. And texting is, a, I think it's dead now. At the time, it was working great. It was a very labor-intensive marketing outreach tool. Because when you send 1,000-plus texts, you're getting hundreds of responses. You immediately lose credibility if you send up a text that says, Hey, Brock, I noticed you have a 10-acre parcel in blank county. Have you ever considered an offer for it? If you send somebody that text and somebody sends you back, Yes, I have. What will you give me? And then you don't reply for five hours. You've lost credibility. So you need somebody to work that system. Person. And then I realized that on the sales, the one sales assistant just wasn't, wasn't building out the sales of the business the way I wanted. It's, I hired a U.S.-based employee, a sales manager, I'd actually negotiate with buyers and manage that whole sales process. And then fast forward, I got my team got all the way up to four, 14 people at one point. And then in July of this last year, I changed the way I did marketing a little bit, laying off people, just right-sizing the team. Their jobs basically went away. It wasn't really, one of them was a little bit of a performance issue, but the other ones is, just didn't have a need for them anymore. And then we've since kind of scaled a little bit back. We're at 14, went down to nine, now we're at 11. How has that growth been like tied to the growth of the business, like headcount to that? Has it been like pretty deliberate of, hey, when I get to this threshold of revenue or whatever, then I can I need to bring on somebody? Or are you just going off a of feel of I'm feeling overwhelmed and I can't do all of this, so I just need to hire somebody? And then it kind of grows yeah. that way. Yeah. So there's so at first it was really just hey, I see this bottleneck. I'm this bottleneck. I need to hire somebody. So I'm not the bottleneck. Let me expand my time to more valuable things for business. But I read it was recommended by a friend there's a book called Buy Back Your Time by Dan Martell, which is a great book for entrepreneurs or honestly, for, for really for anybody. The principle that he talked about, it's not a new one, but the way, the way he talked about it is great. It's just your time in order to do the things that you want to do and drive revenue or profit for the business, you need to get rid of all the things that are necessary, but don't drive profit. Right? There's a ton of tasks that you have to do are necessary, that are trainable, but they don't necessarily drive profit. They're not the most valuable ways for you to spend your time. And the concept is, hey, if you can hire somebody to do an 80% good job and you can pay them one-fourth of what your time is worth, 25% of what your time is worth, then that is a really good hire. You need to hire the person to do those tasks, pay them one quarter of the time of, of what it costs you to do the same task. And then that frees up your time to work on higher order things. And so that's the philosophy that I've adopted in hiring. I'd say that I, it's a very, it's a very challenge. Like, let me say this. Land investing, real estate investing, at least in the way that I do it, is a very capital intensive business because I'm buying hundreds of properties or at least a hundred. And that requires a ton of money. I'm actually closing on them. I'm paying cash. Some of them I have bank loans for. Some of them I have partners on. But it takes a ton of capital to do 
And when you're scaling a business at the same time, your operations costs are scaling with the size of your organization and the amount of marketing you spend. And if you're scaling your operations and you're scaling the acquisitions at the same time, that profit, remember I told you at the beginning, kind of the beginning of this discussion here that the, the profit is nine months away, right? You're not going to realize the profit from that marketing spend or that team increase for nine plus months. That's really like the razor's edge that it is challenging to walk, been walking over the past couple of years of growing this business has been, hey, how do I make sure I've scaled my team to grow before I need it, so I can actually handle relief without going out of business because I don't realize that profit. I, th I feel like I'm right now, pointed at the corner of my screen because I'm looking at the date, November 2nd. Uh, I feel like that we've reached, we finally reached like a really solid spot where a lot of the fruit of labor of growth are being realized in this quarter for a lot of just properties that we're selling and developing deals that are finally coming to the sales phase. It's nice. It's almost been like kicking the can down the road for actually taking profit off of the table for the last couple of years. But we're finally there, which is nice. No, that's got to be a good feeling. Do you think that is what you just described that finding the edge of not scaling too quickly because of the capital intensity, is that the biggest threat to a land investor? Yeah, one of them. I think the bigger threat is probably like the market just in general, the real estate market in general. If you, I think what I would say to any land investor is if you're buying high quality properties, like desirable, buildable properties, and you're getting a really good deal on them, it's just a matter of time before they sell. They will sell. And so you just, in, in, most, in many businesses, especially this business, cash management becomes very important. Cash flow management, cash management, because you can very easily buy too many properties, tie up all of your capital, and then have a couple dead sales months where you don't realize profit. You don't have cash in the bank. You can't pay your employees. If you have a lot of bank loans or, or mortgages or investors whom you have to pay interest to, then you can't pay your debt obligations. That, that is what will kill, that will kill a business. And so I think setting, when you're setting up your business, how recognizing where your levers are that you can pull to release capital is something you, every, everybody has to plan for. So for me in my business, I generate a lot of mortgages. So I'll buy a property and I will then sell it to somebody with owner financing. And so they'll buy it from me. I'm the bank. They'll put a down payment down. And then I, I generate a mortgage or a deed of trust that they owe me $50,000 or $100,000 or whatever it is. And they're making monthly payments on it. So those mortgages are great for recurring cash flow. You can bank on those. They're going to pay their mortgage every month. And if they don't, you can foreclose and take the asset. Nobody wants that. That's a monthly cash flow that you're now getting in your business. It's great. It helps to like level what's otherwise a pretty bumpy business. A lot of sales one month. And not too many the next month. But that mortgage is a saleable asset. You can sell that mortgage on the open market. And so I, I got to a point in the summer where it was relatively slow on the sales side. We had a couple months of a lot of acquisitions. And so our capital account got down pretty thin, right? Thinner than I would like it to be. Uh, and so I pulled that lever. I sold some mortgages, released cash back into the business. I lost that monthly cash flow. I had to take a little bit of a discount on the principal value of the mortgages, but it was fantastic. It was great. It helped get everybody paid. It helped bridge us until we had quite a few sales lined up. It just, that kind of flexibility 
is something you really have to plan for and that's in your business. You touched on a couple of the other things there briefly. What are those other levers that you were talking about? So mortgages is one. You gave a great explanation of kind of how that process works. What are those other levers that you can be thinking about in this sort of business? Yeah. So obviously, there's an obvious lever, which is cutting expenses and costs. That's, you know, I think everybody should always tighten up your, take a look at the systems, take a look at the software, take a look at fluff in, in, in your OPEX that you can get rid of. That's an easy lever to take. Just periodic audits of what you're actually spending money on to, and just, hey, is this, are we getting the benefit and return on this recurring $1,000 a month expense? Or, and if no, cut it, make those cutting decisions. So that's another lever, but that's more of just housekeeping and, and just being disciplined with what you're spending. Another lever, at least for me and my business, is bank financing. I buy a lot, of, I buy almost all of the properties I buy cash or with investor capital, it's essentially cash. Don't have a ton of, but they're assets and there are banks loan against assets. That's what bank does, but land's a little harder to get an, a mortgage on, but it's not impossible. And so that's another lever. I have a property right now that I bought it. It was, it's a beautiful hunting property. Bought it for about $90,000, 85 acres in Northeast Alabama. And it's the one that did the big job on contractor I talked about a little bit earlier. We built like a $60,000 road. We put a gate in. It's a beautiful property, but I have 150 something thousand dollars tied up in it. It's owned outright. Loans on it. And we have it listed right now for sale. But I can see a potential need for capital. And I don't know if it's going to sell this month or if it's going to sell next month or if it's going to sell in January or it's going to take more to sell. I don't know because it's impossible to truly predict when somebody's going to buy something. And so I've already just started a discussion with a local bank that I work with uh, on mortgage. A relatively low loan to value, probably 50%. Property's worth 250, 260, something like that. They're working that down. So if it sells before then, I'll just stop that process and I won't bother. But the mortgage, the mortgage is going to cost me 1500 bucks to maybe 2000 with closing costs. And then obviously the interest while I hold that mortgage. But it then releases $130,000 of capital back into the business. Can I make more than the 8 to 9% interest plus origination fee in that time by doing other deals or maintaining additional equity in some of the deals that have coming? Probably. The answer is yes. It's a good business decision. It gets challenging if you do that on every property. and You're just leveraged to the gills because then your, your debt service becomes very high and you have to close a deal or you closed on. I think if you balance that, make good decisions for how much risk you're taking, that could be another lever, useful tool. You've clearly spent a ton of time thinking about this and then it being your full-time job, I would hope that you have, but it you demonstrate that and like exude that knowledge when you talk and that's, it's super cool. I love seeing that and love hearing and just like listening to you talk about it. And talk well, I hope it's not too much jargon while I'm trying. No, no pretty... you're good. One of the, I don't know if this is like a business lever for you, but one thing that you've been talking to me about personally is like looking at getting into the content game. And as somebody who like does that for a living, almost like that, my ears perk up a little bit about that. Aside from being the next, like not wanting to be the next course guru, what is your like thought process going into content and 
what do you think that could look like and what are you looking for to do for you? Yeah, one of the one of the things that I love about being in the Navy, and obviously I'm wearing my hat from when I separated the, the USS Maine, SSBN 741. Got one of the things I love about being I got a rep. Yeah, I never I rarely I hadn't worn this hat for about six years until this week. I do like that. I just typically wear like a flat brim hat. But one of the things I loved about being in the Navy was just the training aspect of it and like the teaching aspect of it. I was I was mostly in the engineering department for my boat, pretty much only engineering department. But part of that was just leading a lot of trainings for for guys and gals on the submarine, helping them make, like increase their proficiency, helping them make, obtain qualifications to, for rank advancement. I just found a lot of value in that process, helping prepare the, my shipmates for the mission. And I'm not really doing that right, I'm teaching that. That's really what I want do is help people learn how to do this business, help people learn how to scale, help people learn how to manage a team, hire, help people. There's so many interesting things about it. And I truly believe without any shadow of a doubt, this is something that can change people's lives if they learn the skills, just buying and selling. A lot of, a lot of, there's a lot of talk and about jobs being outsourced i have a bunch of virtual assistants they're my employees i don't think about them as virtual assistants but they're outsourced work from the united states and the reason i do that is because i can get really highly trained people that are intelligent that cost a fraction of what they cost in the u.s but the jobs that they're doing they're it's easy for other people to do them in other countries like they're not i don't have to have an american to do those jobs right but something that is really hard to take away and outsource and put overseas is sales. It's just buying and selling, valuing things, building teams. Like that's really hard to outsource. And so I think if people gain these skills, they're able to do, figure out, and maybe it's not land, like maybe it's something else. But if, if, if you can, if you are good at sales, I don't think you ever have to worry about having your job be just building relationships, Helping people understand the value of something in closing are just skills that will serve people incredibly well. So for the content game, I think the main thing, obviously, is just being able to teach. I think people who create content just you just have this credibility, right? This credibility that you're an expert in your field, that if you don't put anything out, nobody knows you. Nobody knows what you're doing all about. And I think there's a lot of relationships, business opportunities that can be formed through sharing freely putting out information for people. Good job. Yeah, I, I think that hits the nail on the head. And every single ambition ends up in teaching in some way. Like you you set out to do something and like at once you've mastered it, there's like a certain level of just like maybe not knowing what to do. And so part of that I think is, is giving back. And that's cool that you feel that way. The unfortunate state of what we see a lot on social media is just like, it's super scammy. And I totally understand people's hesitancy to venture into this space to not be associated with that. But I know that I've said this to you already, but like, I think when you are authentic and truly yourself and willing to own who you are, what you do, and produce something that is of value people don't question that. People know 
and I think it will be very clear, and I think that you'll crush if you get into it. That's got to make you feel good, and I think that when we are pursuing that bigger and better thing that isn't money, it you can't help but bring everybody around you along for the ride, and that just that's a cool feeling. And I think you set a great example for vets. So I appreciate you. Justin, what can myself or anybody listening do to be useful to you? I appreciate that. I think there's just for anybody, maybe there's a little tidbit for anybody who's interested in just learning how to, what the business is like. There's the guy who I paid to do my initial coaching and went through his program. His name's Clint Turner. And he's got a program called learn.land. They're a great mastermind, right? They sell coaching, and they, but he's put out on YouTube for free a lot of the training videos that basically I, I paid for when I joined his program. And that, that's a great kind of free resource. And, and I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that's behind a paywall for, for his business, but, but there is a lot of free guidance out there. Another guy, Seth Williams, he has a podcast called RE Tipster, which is just land and other real estate stuff, but he's got a lot of really good content, big YouTube channel great podcast for people who are interested in learning what people have done in space. There's guys, Casual Fridays, REI is another one, Justin Sleva, Adam Southey. Those guys, they're great. They're great. They've been in the game for the land space specifically for a while, like five plus six years. Have a podcast that they put out and I think they have some education as well. Another one is a guy named Jaron Barnes and a buddy of mine, Drew, who have a thing called, or a business called Land of Maverick Society. And they, it's a, sort of a mastermind coaching program as well. That's fantastic. A lot of people have been really successful going through their program. So there's a lot of like resources out there for people to learn this business. I don't want to be, I, my goal is never, it was never, and isn't to be another one of those. There's already enough base level resources out there, but growing like a large team doing minor subdivides and maybe even subdivides with some engineering work, county approvals, financing, owner financing, and some of the more, the strategies for collateralizing notes and the finance side of the business. That's where I find I could provide people a lot of value. There's not really, other than individual coaching, there's not really any kind of course or education out there to teach people those more advanced strategies. That's where I, I want to be. I'm not super interested in helping somebody go from zero to doing their first deal because I think that's attainable with the free education that's out there. But taking somebody from, hey, I've done some deals and I want to build an actual business and scale this thing to having a great business, that's something I think I can definitely help somebody with. You've got the track record to show it. And it's been cool to watch and learn from you along the way and uh, excited to see what the, the coming years bring. If you had to sum up what the one most important thing that a vet ought to learn from you, what do you think that would be? So over time, the, the most important thing that somebody, that I want somebody to learn from me, like from this podcast or? Just you in general. In general. Uh I think that, especially as a veteran, I had, when I left the Navy, like I didn't want to leave the Navy. Let's just, I, I've had a great commanding officers. I had great shipmates. I was good at my job and I liked it. It wasn't really my first choice. When I got married, 
my wife was pretty clear and we, and at the time I agreed, Hey, like, this is not a long-term thing. Like we're going to do that. I've already signed up. Like I'm committed. We're going to do this submarine thing. And then we're going to go and have a family. And so she reminded me that as I was getting out. And so we, I left. Moved to Houston where I live and drum and started working for ExxonMobil. And I just didn't feel like I really had a purpose. I don't know. It just felt weird. It was like a very, I went from, from being able to very clearly articulate the mission of what we were doing and my purpose and leading teams of people and given inordinate amounts of responsibility as a young man to working for this corporate giant and not feeling super passionate about always what I was working on. I don't know, just lost a little bit. I think part of that was just like the sin of putting my identity in to something that wasn't the Lord. And I don't know, I think through leaving ExxonMobil and being able to now be in a position where I am actually creating value in the world, I am growing the economy by subdividing properties. Like I'm just creating value by doing these projects. I'm creating value in my team's lives by employing them and allowing them to provide for their family. There's just a lot of just goodness that comes from providing for people. And so I guess what I would say to people who want them to learn is you really need to figure out a higher purpose for what you're working. It can't just be to make more money. That was a big part of why I wanted to leave like corporate world and be in control of that is, is to be able to provide more for my family. But the real value has come in, in just creating value and creating just a place where this team is thriving. It's through employing some of these people, man, they're they able to afford private school for their kids. They're able to buy houses and move and into a safer neighborhood or like higher ground where they're not getting flooded. It's insane. The, it's amazing. I love that. Anyway, higher purpose. That's got to make you feel good. And I think that when we are pursuing that bigger and better thing that isn't money, it, you can't help but bring everybody around you along for the ride. And that just, that's a cool feeling. And I think you set a great example for vets. So I appreciate you. Justin, what can myself or anybody listening do to be useful to you? If I start a YouTube channel, which I think I will, go watch some videos and like them. No, but yeah, that's a good question. I have a website that's justinpache.com, J-U-S-T-I-N-P-I-C-H-E. Com. just started that's like a coaching website slash calendly i don't suggest people like book calls just randomly but if you are interested in land space you could reach out i have an email address on there i'd be happy to, to share more obviously active on twitter so you can engage me there as well scouting the number four land which you may put these things in the show so maybe i don't need to dictate any of them but yeah honestly just I, I hope that vets especially that are thinking about getting out of the military on the cusp I think it'd be, you're in a unique position where you don't have to just work for a company. You're leaving the military. A lot of people think, hey, I got to go work for a company and get an income that's about the same or more than what I was making in the Navy or the Army or whatever. A lot of people are in a really good position where you could, you can go out. And, this is the time to take risks for a lot of folks. And if somebody has a, a spouse, especially that has an income and, and you can make it work on your spouse's income. And you have a desire to sort of business or go out on your own. I can't think of a better time than when you're transitioning. And so what people could do for me is 
freaking go after your dreams, man. Go after it. What's the worst that happens? You lose like a couple of months between leaving the Navy and, and, and working for somebody else. I think that something that vets wildly underestimate is how many of the things that they dislike about the military, assuming that they do dislike some things, the things that bother them will still exist in the next corporate job. And so I think that there's, that's what I've found to be true. And I think that will resonate with a lot of people. It's entrepreneurship and starting the business is certainly not for everybody, probably, but it's good to know your options and to be willing to take risks and try new things when downside is very limited. Yeah. Justin, I really appreciate you joining me today, man. I will put all the links in the show notes and we will talk soon. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Brock. It's been awesome. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Your listenership helps me better educate people like you and the rest of our nation's military, both past and present, on building a successful life outside of military service. If you're looking for more ways the top vets are leading more effective lifestyles, building businesses, and using the resources designed specifically for you, press here for a selection of some of the best clips. Be sure to like this video and subscribe to the channel to stay up to date, and I will be talking with you soon.